0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed declares, and so Christians have historically and ecumenically affirmed. (laughs) But what are we affirming when we call God the Son, begotten of the Father? And is that theologically coherent, biblical, essential? Yes to all three, argues a new book edited by Fred Sanders and Scott Swain. Its title and its agenda is Retrieving Eternal Generation, and it aims to re-engage evangelical Protestants with that neglected historical doctrine without which any articulation of Trinitarian theology becomes brittle and disconnected I'm David Grubbs, your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles, and today I have the pleasure of conversation with Dr. Fred Sanders, professor in Biola University's Tory Honors Institute and co-editor of Retrieving Eternal Generation, published by Zondervan. Welcome back to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Sanders.
1: It's good to be here, David.
0: Well, before we zoom into the particulars of the essays in this collection, uh, we should make sure that our subject is understood. Um... Often Christians misunderstand or misuse traditional theological terms as when someone refers to the virgin birth as the Immaculate Conception, which, you know, is should be embarrassing but frequently right. isn't. <laughs> so briefly, what are you saying is true when you affirm eternal generation?
1: Yeah, eternal generation is one part of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's um, a description of the relationship between the Father and the Son from all eternity. Um, so it, it's not explicitly about the, the triunity itself and that we're not counting to three and we're not explicitly mm-hmm. including the Holy Spirit. But we're also not just talking about the Father or just talking about the Son. We're in that spot between them um, of their relationship. And since God is essentially and eternally triune, It means we're talking about, it's kind of weird to say, but sort of our best conceptual description of the structure of God. What what it is to be God is for the Father and the Son to stand in an eternal Father-Son relation. Eternal generation is traditional language that goes sort of one step further conceptually and says, that relation is a relation in which the Son is from the Father. Always has been, never wasn't from the Father— uh, but it's also non-reversible. The the Father is not from the Son. The Son is eternally generated from the Father. Uh, the other word you hear associated with this a lot is begotten, the, the eternal begetting of the Son.
0: Mm-hmm. And Latin equivalents like filiation or things of that nature.
1: Yes, very, very handy um, in other languages to be able to <laughs> uh, say things like that. I'm often thrown back on the simple and not especially elegant English word "from," Mm. uh, that when you when you really get down to the bare minimum of what we're affirming with eternal generation, it's fromness. Mm. Well, a lot of the the lot of the. I'm we need to look it up and see if the OED thinks "fromness" is a word, but I I haven't checked yet.
0: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe task for another day. Well, the title of the book is "Retrieving Eternal Generation." So, what is retrieval? Did we did we lose the doctrine and need to find it again? Is retrieving it the same as defending it, or is that different?
1: How does that yeah, work? yeah, it's a good question. So, so first, just on retrieval itself, and then secondly, on retrieving eternal generation. Retrieval is a mode of theology that looks to the past, um, not just because we think. Uh, There was a perfect golden age, and if only we could repristinate that, everything would be great again. Um, But it respects the sort of central lines of the achievement of classical Christian doctrine um, and uh, tries to operate with those classical categories and arguments and concepts and interpretive styles of the great tradition of theology um, in order to do constructive systematic theology today in our own time. So uh, the late John Webster talked about theologies of retrieval, um, sort of in contrast to critical theologies, which wanted to, which were mainly concerned to test Christian doctrine for accuracy, um, or to revise Christian doctrine in light of contemporary concerns. So instead of those critical or revisionist modes, he said, um, w- really some of the best work is to be done in retrieval theology. Hmm. And then just last year, um, Darren Sarisky edited a, a large and uh, impressive book on theologies of retrieval. Um, and one of the things Sarisky's book, I think, documents really well is this is not one particular club or school of thought. It's a mode of theology theologizing that is pretty broad and diverse in contemporary thought. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's retrieving in general. And then with eternal generation— um, course, anytime you say retrieve it, it's it's a sense that the doctrine is um, maybe poorly confessed in our own time. Mm. Uh, I'll just say from an evangelical perspective, um, in the sense of someone who attends the Evangelical Theological Society meeting every year and hears a lot of papers and reads the abstracts for all the other papers and kind of sees what's going on in the evangelical theological world. um, There was a period of time over the last decade where seems like every year I'd go to the conference and there was at least one paper questioning whether eternal generation is in fact a biblical doctrine. Hmm. So expressing doubts or, or hedging things a little bit, um, and and maybe arguing—there uh, th- was a tendency to argue that we could be Trinitarian and biblical, but not have to affirm this doctrine of eternal generation. So—so um, these papers came together actually as ets papers where a group of us uh, on the trinitarian theology consultation decided we would devote a few years to papers investigating the doctrine of eternal generation Hmm.
0: so that's the current moment in the church that led you and scott swain to say we need a conversation about internal generation right now and we need a book about it
1: yep cool yeah it's always kind of that question of has anyone? Uh, so I keep hearing a steady drip, drip, drip of people saying, "I'm not sure if that's a real Bible doctrine, or if it's maybe just a piece of the tradition that's optional for us." Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided someone needs to do something loud, smart, and in public, uh, celebrating and defending this doctrine. So those papers and then um, uh, this volume really came out of that intention.
0: Was the uh, the kerfuffle? Um, I... Last year, uh, I think it was last year, uh, about the notion of the son submitting to the father in eternity. Is that in part of this conversation or adjacent?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's adjacent. I mean, that's that's my own opinion. You could probably find people who would say it is central to what we're talking about here. I think it's adjacent um, in that. Uh, so let's let's take people who are arguing that the son eternally submits to the father. That's like eternal functional subordination or something, or mm-hmm. eternal uh, relational, uh, ERAS—I I can't remember what that stands for.
0: They have a, two or three of those that yeah. get used.
1: Yeah, so whatever those views are, um, those are, uh, charitably considered, those are attempts to answer the question, what is the distinction between the Father and the Son? Mm-hmm. Which is, a, actually, that's a great question. The Father is God, and the Son is God, so there you find yourself with the hard problem of saying, well, how aren't they each other? Um, That EFS, E-R-A-S, eternal subordination uh, movement of thought, is an attempt to say, well, maybe one eternally submits his will to the other. Maybe there's a command and obey structure in God, and that's what is the distinction between them. Meanwhile, if you go over to the great tradition of Nicene theology, pro-Nicene theologies, and ask them, well, what do you say the difference between the Father and the Son is? Uh, The answer was always eternal generation. So when I say these two doctrines are adjacent to each other, what I mean is if you don't have a good doctrine of eternal generation sort of running in your Trinitarian theology and satisfying you more or less about the distinction between the Father and the Son, then you will go off looking for other doctrines to do that work. And I think to a large extent that, that eternal subordination doctrine was offered as a an alternative doctrine. And, of course, some of the people who teach it— um, uh, b- deny eternal generation, or at least say it's not well b- well attested enough biblically to be sort of a, a weight-bearing wall in our doctrinal theology.
0: So speaking of this weight-bearing wall, um, your volume shores it up from a number of disciplinary approaches. Uh, biblical studies, hermeneutics, historical theology, philosophy even— um, I'm I'm still not entirely sure I understand that essay. Uh, what role do all of these uh, disciplines play in a more full-orbed understanding of eternal generation?
1: Yeah, well, it's pretty important to get the foundational stuff down first, and that mm. is the the biblical revelation. So, uh, a a big chunk of the book is devoted to the biblical case. Um, in fact, even when we sort of turn and start talking about major historical figures from the history of theology, we kind of turn towards them with a history of interpretation kind of a lens. Um, so, I think about Louis Ayres' uh, chapter on origin is—it's really about ways of reading the Bible. Um, uh, so, so that's that's the main thing. Once that's foundationally established, then um, then you can turn to the historical figures and see how this has looked. In different theological idioms and cultures down through the centuries, um, and then finally, the um, we wanted to make sure to include some philosophical work, um, uh, and uh, yeah, so Mark Macon wrote a chapter for us, um, you know, in that mode of philosophical theology explaining. If you think this doctrine has a contradiction, uh, then you are proposing a defeater, and now I will propose a defeater for your defeater. That you know that kind of <laughs> mode of working. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and also, uh, though Mark is heavily invested in one particular thought project that might be a good model for how to conceive of eternal generation, he um, he instead sort of canvassed a number of options, um, any of which uh, can stand critical scrutiny yeah i I appreciated the the work that that was doing
0: in the volume even if I was not always necessarily following the argument i i was I was glad that he was scratching the itch even if I could not <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah we tried to label the chapters really clearly so people could know um you know which ones to dip into
0: well i I appreciated the uh I, I, I'm, I definitely stuck much more with the biblical and historical ones, though. I did read it all. I, I, <laughs> I, I was a good student. I did all the reading. Um, Swain and uh, Solon, is that how you pronounce?
1: Yeah, I believe uh, Kendall pronounces that Solon.
0: Okay. Uh, Swain and Solon's essays. Uh, both of them wrestle with the manner of Scripture's speech about God, and I think this is something that some of the other essays take up as well. Um, the ways that that speech is more or less literal, figurative, or accommodated to human categories. Um, how did these considerations inform our understanding of eternal generation?
1: Yeah. Um, so the, the great thing about both of those chapters, um, Scott and Kendall have both invested a lot of thought in the divine names which is a, it's an interesting category of theology. Of course, the classic text on the divine names is by Pseudo-Dionysius, um, and it's a pretty ornate, elaborate, and frankly sometimes kind of weird theological project. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, a lot of us kind of look at it from a distance and say, well, that is that is what it is, and there it is. It's part of the tradition. It's important and influential, and boy, Pseudo-Dionysius, you know? What do you expect from a guy named Pseudo? Right, um, right. <laughs> Um, But both Scott and uh, Kendall have really engaged that Divine Names tradition uh, uh, really deeply, and it's been helpful for me to realize before they get into all that talk about um, literal, figurative, accommodated, etc., to realize, oh yeah, what we're talking with is the raw material of understanding God's self-revelation, that is, Mm. God's own self-naming. When you're dealing with the Doctrine of the Trinity— we're just right up against the blunt fact that God named himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Matthew 28 uh, and, and numerous other places. Um, and that means you're left holding the names Father and Son and asking yourself, well, what does it mean that the second person of the Trinity, which, by the way, is radically unbiblical language, second person of the Trinity, right, that's mm-hmm. that's like intentionally abstract language to give us a supposedly neutral way of talking about this. Um, what does it mean that the second person of the trinity is the son is he literally the son figuratively the son uh analogically the son how how is sonship accommodated to our human categories mm-hmm. uh, so that's where that discussion really comes in um and uh but you know it's a, it's a rich discussion but it's really a, a an application of the theology of divine names
0: mm. i found that really really uh, helpful because you know, if, if pushed against the wall, I might have difficulty answering, why is it that I honor God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, um, and not, and don't take verses like, our God is a consuming fire, and, mm-hmm. and say, and also, our God, the fire, and our God, the brooding chicken,
1: or, right,
0: right. right, right. I mean.
1: Um, yeah, and certainly, um, Kendall Solon in particular, in his book on um, the the, triune name um, tries to show the legitimacy of starting with some kind of foundational identifying names and then you know Kendall's really invested in moving out into all the many many names you know long list of all these ways that God likens himself mm. uh, to various things yeah but when you get right to the center of it um, I so I teach undergrads and I teach Socratically so I ask a lot of awkward and irritating questions all the time um, as my professional job there at the Tory Honors Institute. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I'm always asking is, is Jesus literally the Son of God? And, um, you know, it gets you into this whole situation where you want to say, well, it all depends on what literal means, doesn't it? <laughs> um, like when I say son, I think there's going to be a mom and a dad and the son's going to be younger than the dad mm-hmm. um, and shorter for a while. And, and you have to stop and say, okay, none of that applies. Mm-hmm. We're, we're using the name son, but there's not a mom of the eternal uh, son, right? There's not a God, the mother involved. Um, the son is not younger than his father, etc. And so you've taken those things away and said, well, what is God affirming about himself when he affirms that God is father and son and spirit? Mm. And that's where you say, well, here's the relation between father and son that we believe the Bible is affirming and teaching. It's a relation of, Having the same essence, because Mm. as Athanasius points out, a man by craft builds a statue, but by nature begets a son. And Mm. so to affirm that the son is son of the father is to affirm that he's of the same stuff. Mm. Um, And that he um, images the first person and that he is from the first person. So you're sort of back to fromness as uh, the core of what we're talking about
0: excellent well speaking of fromness uh, iron's essay um I, I, I get the i get the sense that when iron's essay um started circulating uh, it generated uh, a certain amount of of tremor in the uh in the theology world uh, iron's essay on uh, uh only begotten It's one of the ones that I feel stands out in the collection, and uh, the way that he takes up previous questions regarding that one particular term um, uh, I think is is, is interesting. Um, So what lies behind the way translations vary how they render this term? How much weight can we put on this word when talking about eternal generation? How only begotten is only begotten? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So maybe to start with, it is an important discussion, but it's not um, central to the Mm. doctrine of eternal generation. Mm. So, you know, one of the things I want to point out is, um, well, so often you can find someone who will say, I used to believe in eternal generation, but then I found out that monogenes used to be translated only begotten, but it should be translated unique or just only. And Mm -hmm. since that word doesn't have begotten in it, then I don't affirm the doctrine of eternal begetting or eternal generation. Ah. Um, There are people who have that belief system. Um, Like, in their minds, the doctrine of eternal generation stands or falls with the translation and interpretation of this word monogenes from the Johannine literature. Um, But that is not, in fact, uh, the basis of the judgment that the Son is eternally generated. Um, it's nice and handy, and you read you know, one church father after another writing in their native Greek and treating monogenes uh, as comporting very well with the doctrine of eternal generation. Um, but the first point I want to make is, you know, we've got D.A. Carson in here showing the doctrine of eternal generation from John 5. Um, we've got uh, Madison Pierce arguing it from Hebrews' use um, uh, of the Old Testament, of, of Psalm 2. Um, so that is, and, and of course we got proverbs uh, going on here with Matt Emerson. So there's a much broader biblical witness that's, in fact, in many ways more structurally important to why we affirm eternal generation. Having said all that, um, it's it's often an uphill battle when when talking with say conservative evangelicals who are good at Greek in the modern exegetical sense. Um, who really think there's a close connection between this word monogenes and the doctrine of eternal generation. Cause for a long time we translated monogenes, uh, only begotten. You know, if you ever say John 3:16 with your grandma, she says only begotten. Uh, but if mm-hmm. you're saying it in any modern edition, you just say only or unique. The, the begottenness has kind of vanished away from our translations. Mm-hmm. Well, it vanished in the 20th century and there's a strong consensus uh, for translating the word only or unique. Now, I'm a systematic theologian who is just good enough to be dangerous with actual exegesis, <laughs> uh, so I think it would be unseemly for me to go up against a strong consensus of contemporary exegesis, um, and, you know, including all these committees of brilliant people who work on Bible translations. You know? Like, every time I'm holding an English translation and second-guessing it based on my knowledge of the Greek, I have this out of this out-of-body moment where I think, am I, really, am I really likely to be seeing more in the Greek than a room full of experts saw when they produced this translation? You know, it, it, it could happen, but um, <laughs> I, I don't even have a, you know, a graduate degree in Greek uh, exegesis. So um, so I, I knew that uh, Lee Irons had this uh, body of research that he'd been working on, and he'd, he'd had some blog posts about it and some, some articles. Uh, So I wrote to him and said, can you just put a big, big red question mark beside the modern consensus? That's all I need. I don't need you to win the fight. I just need you to write one of those articles that's so closely argued everyone has to footnote it from now on. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? That's all I'm looking for. If someone confidently says, that doesn't mean only begotten, footnote. Except Lee Irons built a pretty good case, dang it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that's what I asked him for, and he produced something instead which has – pretty tremendous uh, persuasive power, I think. He, um, I, I, To me, the trick—of course, he puts this in a broader context—but to me, the sort of attention-getting trick is that he used computer-assisted study of uh, uh, the corpus of ancient Greek writings to find a whole bunch of compound words using the genese ending
2: mm-hmm.
1: to show that an idea of fromness or generation is built into uh, a large group of them which are not represented in your standard lexicons.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, Because you're not going to represent every, you know, you're not going to list every compound word of every kind. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, he looked at that. It's a pretty compelling case. I mean, famously, Wayne Grudem read an early draft of it and said, dang, he's right. Okay, now I think eternal generation. Now I think uh, monogamous should be translated um, only begotten. And the case for eternal generation is much stronger than I thought. Yeah. Well... For people who look to Wayne Grudem for guidance, I felt like I could hear a thousand people change their mind like that moment.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I I was, uh, sort of paying enough attention to this conversation as it was going on that when that moment hit, I was like, okay, I need to, I need to find out what that guy wrote. (laughs) (laughs) So when I, when I got to that essay, it was, um, I don't know, it, it felt a little bit the way uh, I suppose one feels when they visit, like, a Civil War battlefield or something, when <laughs> you're like, something important happened here.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, the, the the essays of Emerson and Carson, Matthew Emerson and uh, D.A. Carson, in particular, are concerned... Um, not only with the exegesis of particular passages, Proverbs 8 and John 5, 26, um, but also with the very practice of exegesis itself. Um, What it can do, what it can't do. I really appreciated both, but seeing Carson's really cautious, close reading alongside um, what feels to me as a modern reader, a very sort of freewheeling, patristic mode, um made me wonder whether retrieving eternal generation also means retrieving patristic and medieval hermeneutics. Can, can we re, can we retrieve this doctrine with Carson caution or do we need Do we need new modes?
1: <laughs> yeah Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, you, you're kind of sketching, you know, using Emerson and Carson as, as symbolic figures. Um, Kind of sketching a divide between like theological interpretation of scripture on the one hand, which can seem pretty Mm. underdetermined and freewheeling and associative, Mm -hmm. uh, with sober grammatical historical exegesis as represented by D.A. Carson. Um, And so that, yeah, that is really kind of the lay of the land out there. Um, uh, And I I should just confess that D.A. Carson kind of functions in some ways as my exegetical super ego. Uh, Whenever I'm, (laughs) whenever I'm making an argument, you know, from my own attempts at exegesis, when I'm trying to be a good boy and look at the original languages and see what's happening there. And um, I always have in my mind some future edition of exegetical fallacies, um, you know, with footnotes about me in it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) okay, I got to get this right. I want to, you know, I want (laughs) to actually sketch out a sober, not tipsy grammatical, historical, defensible, you know, what does this say? No, mm-hmm. um, I think it's telling that the book, the chapters um, work well together in this volume mm-hmm. towards the same end, which, which to me indicates that the great divide between those uh, approaches more generally, um, it, I think it's really, that gap starts to close when you start to look at some high-level Christian doctrinal claims. Mm-hmm. Um Uh, The real value of Carson's chapter is that he is affirming the biblical character of the doctrine of eternal generation without using any of those words. Mm -hmm. Generatedness, none none of that's in the John 5, life in himself, you know, gives the son to have life in himself kind of language. Mm -hmm. All that the father has, he gives to the son. Um, So just the fact that you can render the same doctrinal judgment using a different set of conceptual tools— is really valuable and shows some of the built-in flexibility and scope of sober historical grammatical interpretation you know it's easy for people who like the church father's mode of working to kind of look at the um exegesis people as kind of you know squinty-eyed looking through a microscope can't see the forest for the trees Mm -hmm. Uh, but in fact you know handled rightly you can really see the 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 range that that approach has uh, Emerson, I have to admit, had a really hard assignment. Um, if you just, you know, time traveled back and asked any church father what verse they most wanted to argue about when they were arguing about eternal generation, they would all go to Proverbs. Mm-hmm. And they would use this passage that, man, I try to work with it. And I think, well, first of all, that's a mistranslation. And second of all, it's not talking about what you think about it. And, like, I got like nine objections to this before I can even do doctrinal work with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, Matt is well aware of that, and um, he went in and really explained. Um, I don't know; it's more like the mortar than the bricks. He really explained the patterns of judgment that are behind um, using that wisdom Christology mm-hmm. to establish the relation of origin of the Son from the Father.
0: So this is a this is a question I've had. And maybe this is uh, beyond, beyond anyone's ability to speculate wisely. Um, is it? Do we think the fathers would have so readily made Proverbs 8 home base for the eternal generation of the Son if they also hadn't had the Wisdom of Solomon book floating around in their context?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do think that they, um, when they thought about wisdom statements in Scripture, they were thinking about them more broadly than we tend to. Mm-hmm. And some of that has to do with some um, deuterocanonical, ancient, helpful literature that they were conversant with and, and uh, uh, you know, they were not phobic about. Mm-hmm. Even if, you know, from from way on back, you've got Church Fathers saying that, well, those books are really in a different category, aren't they? They're the anti-Legomena books that, uh, what's-his-name, Eusebius mentions in a canon discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in general, my rule of thumb for reading The Church Fathers is I try to be cross-cultural about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have I try to have this intercultural moment where I say, my people uh, <laughs> do things this way. We, We break things down to clear units of meaning and see how they are related in specifiable ways, you know, in -hmm. public, good lights. Um, But this place that I'm visiting, this patristic world, they don't really break things down into discrete units like that. They are always um, thinking holistically in ways that that's just not my intellectual culture. And um, so, for instance, you know, just like all the sciences used to be under the heading of natural science and then each one as it got, you know, a ramified tradition of inquiry and some funding broke off and became its own science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, similarly, when you read a book by one of the Church Fathers, you kind of want to shelve it on your, on your bookshelves as either doctrinal theology or sermons or Bible commentary or spiritual formation literature. And generally, they simply will not go into those categories. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Church Fathers are always doing everything at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that's got its pluses and minuses. I I really mean it when I say it's an intercultural moment where I say, I'm not going to try to write a series of sermons on John in which I also creatively develop my own Trinitarian theology and do pastoral formation, but I'm glad Augustine did.
0: Yeah. I mean, I sometimes wonder whether, if given the opportunity, uh, if some of those fathers couldn't have—I don't know—the the way math class puts it, couldn't have shown their work yeah. in a more careful kind of way if, if, if asked to do it, but it wasn't—it wasn't a thing they were asked to do. Um, this is kind of a this is kind of a side note, but you yeah. know, often uh, something like. The scarlet cord of Rahab, gets, <laughs> um, which you know is kind of a patristic commonplace, gets yeah. uh, presented as well. You know, obviously this is this is goofy. That's not in the biblical text, but if you go back to uh, Justin Martyr's reference to that, he explicitly connects it historically to the symbolism of the Passover, mm. which makes a historical argument yeah for why why jews in the moment might decide hmm how can we signify the house not to be destroyed in coming judgment (laughs)
1: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i think that's right there's a place in uh irenaeus's demonstration the apostolic preaching so again you know early second century Mm -hmm. where he says in the psalms where it says um open wide the gates uh, for the king of, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. He reads that as choirs of angels antiphonally singing to each other at different levels of heaven. Mm. So the lower angels are saying, or the higher angels, the lower angels are saying to the higher angels, open up the gates so the King of glory can come in. Then the higher angels shout back down to the lower ones, who's the King of glory? And then the lower ones shout, the Lord strong and mighty. And his argument is something like, yeah, they didn't see the Lord leave heaven, but now they're seeing him come back at the ascension in a body, and they're going, who is that guy? And the lower angels are telling him. Well, you read that, and it sounds bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just sounds like, where did you get that? That is a strange puppet show ministry portion of the church service. Um, <laughs> but then, you know— you." Uh, if you can kind of track what he's doing with that psalm and why that psalm is an Ascension Sunday psalm uh, mm. going into early usage, you, you start to figure out, you know, why he's doing that.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Ah, well, when, one day we get to play play fly on the wall in those conversations. <laughs> we'll just have to be patient.
1: Well, we haven't... I, you know, I should also say, when you mm. say show your work, it's... um. I think you're right probably some of them if you could ask them the right set of questions in the right order they could probably break things apart for you a little bit and say where they got what they're doing but I would just want to point out what an eccentric thing that is to do for most cultures outside of modern Western academia Um, in art history one of the one of the Holy Grails is if you ever find someone in the ancient world looking at an image and then writing down what they are thinking about while they look at the image that's just golden. I mm-hmm. mean, we, because normally you've got some texts and you've got some images, but texts about images, mm-hmm. texts about here's what I thought when I saw that picture. Those are extremely rare. They're, you know, they're fantastic sources of information, but you don't get them very often because it turns out to be a very eccentric thing to do, to have a visual uh, experience and then write down on paper what your visual experience is. Mm. I, you know, in our history class, I might assign undergrads to do that every week, mm-hmm. but it's a strange artificial exercise I'm asking them to do.
0: So this is something similar.
1: Yeah, I think so. To actually stop the church fathers and say, please write out as a geometric proof on paper which thoughts <laughs> are established before going on to the next thought. Right. Well, that that is a very non-holistic way to, to break down what we're doing.
0: Hmm. I, I'm reminded a little bit of, uh, oh, this has been years ago, but um, uh, Kevin Van Hooser's uh, l- paper about uh, N.T. Wright and talking about N.T. Wright flying on interpretive angles um, beyond the reach of mere exegetes. <laughs> and I, I sometimes wonder whether uh, those those interpretive wings were ones inherited from the Fathers. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, don't tell N.T. write that, but maybe so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't discussed the historical essays yet. So what function do historical witnesses serve in a doctrinal discussion, especially this one? Um, how do you think these particular historical witnesses can help with the retrieval of eternal generation in the branches of Christianity that this essay collection is geared toward?
1: Yeah. um, Well, one of the things um, that the history of interpretation can do is it can help commend uh, the rest of the book um, to particular audiences. So we did want to say, like, do we have someone who is sort of uh, important for Roman Catholics? Do we have someone who will commend this to the Reformed community? Um, Do we have too many Reformed uh, authors in here, you know, could we branch <laughs> out a little bit? <laughs> um, uh, so there's that. There's the sense of, you know, in one sense, all Christian history belongs to every Christian, but mm. in another sense, you've got a home team, um, and and so uh, we wanted to make sure that that was represented. Having said that, once our commitment was to have something like half the book be the biblical case, and and for that to be foundational it really meant we were extremely limited on what we could do in the history of interpretation. Um, You know, you could put someone in here from every century, because this is a, this is a classic consensual doctrine, everyone has affirmed eternal generation, and they have all affirmed it in fascinating, distinctive ways. Mm. So I think, like to not have there, there are a number of authors you can name, where you could blame us and say, it's just criminal that you don't have x in this book. Right. like yep no Aquinas in here huh that's criminal um, you know <laughs> you could just you could just go down the list it's ridiculous some of the figures we left out of here um, but that's because well we've only got 15 chapters and we want you know a lot of them to be the, the biblical case mm. and so we, we don't want to make a 500 page book here we want to you know have this thing be readable and and coherent and not sprawl so.
0: The, um, the desire for the historical witnesses, I mean, I, I, I imagine uh, th- this this also seems to be a move that is part of the very logic of retrieval. Um, because, you know, you, you could conceivably have um, folks who would identify as evangelical who says, well, who cares what anybody before Wayne Grudem said? Or mm, or pick right. or pick whoever their their current um, you know their current favorite uh, uh, favorite theologian happens to be you know who what why do we need why do we need these historical witnesses?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and I guess that could also flow from a, a sola scriptura commitment, right? It could at least seek shelter mm-hmm. and kind of. Idea that the final authority is only scripture. So, what would these mediating or uh, relative authorities in between provide? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's a fine theology of the role of biblical authority over against um, the authority of um, classic teachers in the history of the church. It's a fine theology as long as it is in a, an oxygen-rich environment where the voices of many of these other uh, interpreters are, in fact, being heard. Mm. In other words, if someone says, that, you know, I stand alone on the B-I-B-L-E, and they have never read anything from any theologians between the Bible and a current living theologian, um, that's a problem. Like, that's mm. sort of like right theology, but under-resourced. Mm. Now, now, if, in fact, you are aware that you've got brothers and sisters in all these generations— Um, uh, and you then also go on to make the Protestant affirmation, uh, scripture alone has final authority. Um, well, that's, that's fine. You know, it's the same judgment, but a much more resourced, um, kind of a discussion. Mm.
0: Uh, in, um, I think, I think it's, uh, Scott Swain and Michael Allen's book, um, Reformed Catholicity. They talk about, um. The, the Protestant suspicion of the authority being held in, in you know, re- acknowledging some kind of authority for the church, but they position mm. um, ministerial authority over against what the uh, magisterial authority.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Um, may, maybe that would, you know, maybe that would help out this conversation if, if we had a little more respect for the weight of. The, the the weight of the voice of of the of the church that's gone before
1: yeah i think that's right and it also presupposes that authority is on a sliding scale it's it's not a toggle switch mm-hmm. it's not an absolute yes or no um there is such a thing as final authority of scripture um but there are also uh there's a whole you know rheostat a whole spectrum of levels of authority beneath that mm Um, And and the idea of relative authority is, um, I think, something that not everyone is uh, conversant with. You know, they think it's a a yes or no. Does it have authority or doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're dealing with these things, you have to say, some things have a little authority. You know, in controversial issues, if you've got like a disputed subject um, in Christian theology, I'm always—so I teach in Tory Honors, which is a a great books, kind of a classics program, and— if if you want to, if you decide you're going to take a particular position on a controversial issue, you always have to take the weigh the advantages and disadvantages. Like, well, hmm. if I affirm X, I have to disagree with Aquinas and Luther. Man, I don't want to disagree with <laughs> Luther, but 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 I do have Calvin and Anselm on my side. And if I affirm Y, I may have Aquinas and Luther on my side, but then I've got to fight Calvin and Anselm. Right, and so you're always you're always trying to decide when you line up authorities on either side, mm-hmm. uh, which which team you find most persuasive. Because the fact is, ultimately, what has absolute authority is truth. Mm-hmm. I think truth has authority. But if you find
0: nobody at your back, maybe maybe you need to wonder a little. <sighs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> worth being skeptical when you when it occurs to you that you and you alone have come up with this idea. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Not impossible, but it, it sure is unlikely. <laughs> well,
0: uh, on Christian Humanist Profiles, we always end by giving our guests the last word. But I suspect that your last word agenda for our interview is going to chart pretty close to your last word agenda for this anthology. Yeah. So, and you can take a while at this because um, we're making really good use of time. Um, what has eternal generation to do with soteriology? Why is it such good news that the only begotten God in the bosom of the father has revealed him to us?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. So I did get to write that um, uh, chapter near the end. Josh Malone comes after me and does kind of a a dogmatic, systematic theological overview Mm -hmm. of how it fits in an overall system. But but I, I got to give what I think is the the punchline because it it goes with my my life message, which is something like the Trinity and the Gospel belong together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so when you focus it a little more narrowly on eternal generation, um, to say that uh, the the Trinity and the Gospel, or or the Gospel and eternal generation, belong together and mutually support and mutually illumine each other, um, that's that's what I really got to spend some time on in that essay and um you know the most obvious way is that salvation is described in the new testament as adoption Mm. uh going through uh going from a position of not being uh sons of god children of god in fellowship with him uh to becoming children of god why because the son of god came and made that relationship open to us through his propitiating death um that's just the fact that there is that um eternal depth behind uh the experience of salvation um, is what really connects the dots for me i i think back to when i wrote um the deep things of god and i was trying to write that book in a big tent kind of a way to make as many evangelicals as possible feel themselves implicated uh, in what i was saying about the doctrine of the trinity um and so in pursuing that task, I was very careful in choosing my, the witnesses that I called and um, mm-hmm. um, the, the points that I emphasized. Um, and as I was writing the section on eternal generation, I, I thought for a minute, I considered, I had more than a minute actually, I, I spent about a week thinking about this as a thought project. I wondered, should I leave out eternal generation Mm-hmm. and just do a kind of a bare minimum Trinitarianism that didn't kind of complicate things at that point. And I decided um, that the right thing to do is to teach eternal generation as the uh, deep background of what's opened up to us by grace and salvation. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I did that. Of course, I've always believed in eternal generation in this way. Uh, but the idea that even if I'm doing a bare minimum uh, Trinitarianism, if I want to invite people into the depth of what this uh, gospel and trinity connection is, I, I've just I just can't do it without naming and exploring the character of the relation between the father and the son
0: mm. yeah. and I, I, I really appreciate that you made the, the call to do that too Uh because that presentation of eternal generation in the deep things of God was the f- was the first evangelical presentation and and defense of that of that teaching in any form that I was ever exposed to. Mm, yeah. Nice. Nice. Um. And and it rocked my world. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, without it. Without it, if you think about what a bare minimum Trinitarianism is, like a mere Trinitarianism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you end up with something about threeness and oneness, um, you know, sort of the way the Athanasian creed sketches it out. You know, the, there's um, the Father Immortal and the Son Immortal and the Spirit Immortal, but there aren't three immortals, there's one immortal. So there's this 3-1 dialectic, mm-hmm. which is not prominent in Scripture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I, I totally affirm, the, you know, the three persons and the one being, obviously, but when I affirm that, I am not going along the lines of how Scripture itself presents the doctrine. Mm. In fact, if you go with a bare minimum kind of mere Trinitarianism, you've got to get into the relations, and the way to get into the relation between the Father and the Son is to develop it, you know, along the lines of the divine naming so that you get eternal generation. Hmm
0: instead of having three unlabeled entities who maybe at some point drew straws to decide who goes
1: right and i actually think that's some of the genealogy of why um trinitarianism seems so abstract and unrelated to us because if the main thing you associate with it is three and one mm-hmm. like if that if that's where your thought your mind your heart go, you think oh, okay so then, of course, you're going to start looking around your experience and try to find threes. And then you're going to try to analogically link those threes and those triads to the three that you've been mysteriously told about in God in an abstract way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the the party game of finding triads just doesn't get you that deep into what's actually going on in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not so much wrong as it's just I think everyone can tell it feels irrelevant and that's why, for a lot of people, the main thing with Trinitarianism is to figure out, but why does it matter? Mm-hmm. And so my goal is always to get behind that and say, well, if you're getting it from Scripture and according to the great tradition, um, you you will find that why does it matter is a question that has already been answered. Mm. It's not your next step after you establish the doctrine. Mm. It, it's, it's cooked in.
0: Yeah, we, we knew that it mattered before we understood it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the question— What does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with me is a peculiarly modern question that follows from a Peculiarly brittle presentation of what the doctrine is Mm. Yeah, go go
0: go read the upper room discourse
1: (laughs) right. (laughs) Yes, it Sinclair Ferguson who said it's kind of peculiar that on the evening before the entire world Collapsed on their little movement. What Jesus thought was a good idea was to spend the evening explaining the Trinity to them in a small group Yeah
0: Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation, sir. Thank you for uh, uh, agreeing to come onto Christian Humanist Profiles for this the the fourth time.
1: Wow, I'm gonna get the Paul Simon Award or something here.
0: <laughs> well, you're 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 now uh, you're now tied with uh, N.T. Wright. So all
1: right, well that is elite company. <laughs>
0: indeed, indeed it is. <laughs> Well, dear listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed our conversation as well. Alas, that is all we have time for. Uh, if you'd like to give us feedback, you can send that to uh, Christian Humanist, uh, the, the Christian Humanist at gmail.com. You can also post on the show notes to our blog, christianhumanist.org. When those post, you can also leave us re- reviews on iTunes. Uh, we've been talking uh, to Dr. Fred Sanders about his book, uh, Retrieving Eternal Generation, which he he edited along with Scott Swain, and which features excellent essays by a a variety of really good scholarly authors, published by Zondervan. And there will be a link to that book uh, in the show notes. In the meanwhile, Christian Humanist Profiles is a podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic uh, is our press liaison. Britt Stack is our audio editor. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.